Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hickey, hockey, holy, bagel, bugle, bowling, macadamia, vestibule, pina colada, managua, velcro, escargot, malarkey, peccadillo, glockenspiel. Oh, Haywood Banks, you make it sound so easy. But those, some of those are hard words to spell. In fact, that song is called Hickey Hockey Holy. And I had to look up, as I put it in the notes for today's show, how holy was spelled. Because it's actually H-O-L-E-Y as opposed to H-O-L-Y. And Haywood Banks is spelled H-E-Y-W-O-O-E. So spelling. Spelling is important. That's the point of today's show. Or is it? It seems to be facing some pretty major challenges here, but we have the Spelling League of America superheroes who are here to help uh, with the problems of spelling. We're going to start out with the biggest superhero of them all, Peter Sokolowski, a regular guest on our show, uh, editor-at-large Merriam-Webster. He contributed definitions to the brand-new edition of the official Scrabble Players Dictionary. So, you know, call him when you get into a fight with your uncle. Uh, and has been a member of the Word panel for the Scripps National Spelling Beat. Peter, welcome back. It's great to hear your voice, Colin. <laughs> so, um, you know, since I just mentioned spelling bees, it, it did occur to me as we were getting ready for the show that spelling bees are probably bigger for English language speaking countries than they are in lots of other places because so many, the spelling of so many words is kind of up in the air, right? Absolutely. In fact, you might argue that spelling bees are essentially unique to English language countries and really only to America. Weirdly, that uh, England and Australia, Canada don't do it quite as much. But the big story, the bigger story is that languages that derive from their ancient roots with with phonetic alphabets, languages like Hindi or Chinese or Korean um, or the more phonetic European languages like Italian, Spanish, and French, um, they don't have spelling bees because spelling is not really a big problem. They, their languages, their spelling systems are more phonetic and so that they correspond to the sounds of their, uh, their words, which is not true, of course, for English. Right. So if you went up to somebody who was a reasonably good speller and reasonably conversant with the English language and asked them to spell the word phlegm, as in mucus, <laughs> You know, and you gave them 20 guesses. They might not get it in 20 guesses. It takes a long time to think of, oh, I wonder if there's a silent G in there, you know. And, and so how did, we, how did we become that language? How, why is our language so messed up and non-standard? Right. Well, I mean, how long do you got? <laughs> but uh, basically, uh, unlike most of the other languages in the world, which kind of descend from um, acorn to tree, you know, they kind of grow uh, from one spot. And think of the, the Latin spoken by the Romans and the Roman Empire and the Italian, Spanish and French and other languages that derive more or less directly from it. Um, the case for English is different because the initial language was Germanic, the old German 
language that was spoken in what is now sort of Denmark and Holland, um, those people came over to uh, Great Britain and spoke that Germanic-based language. But then, of course, the Norman conquest took place and the Norman uh, French-speaking Normans um, imposed their system of laws and government. So we have now this big mix of Germanic grammar with, uh, with a kind of Latin or Latinate vocabulary. So something like 40% of the words we use, including words like language and vocabulary, are French words, but our word order and our grammar are German. So we have this mix from those two. But then you can superimpose something that happened later, which is that the scientific language of the Renaissance and then the Enlightenment um, the, the, the lingua franca of Europe was, of course, Latin and the Greek-based words spelled in Latin. Um, for all of the names of flowers and plants and animals and scientific things that we uh, kind of added to the language in the 1700s, 1800s. So that's why we have kind of these three stages, the early Old English words, the Norman French words, and then the Latin words stuck on top. In the case of phlegm, you have a word that has been pronounced for a, 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 you know, a thousand years, but some smarter scholars in the 1800s figured out that it came from phlegma, which was originally a Greek word that moved into Latin. So it was transliterated with a PH. And of course, the G uh, was silent. The G was not silent in Latin, but it is in English. Although when you convert it to an adjective, phlegmatic, you do typically say, at least I typically say that G. Um, so no, of course. And the, the weird thing is that we have this distinction in English between the nouns and the adjectives <laughs> for so many of these words because um, they often kind of came in at a different time. That's why we, ha we have the word, for example, governor and then gubernatorial. The B is the B corresponds to the Latin and a word like debt, um, which had the, the Latin root of debit. And we have both words now in English, a word like faith, which it, the noun is fidelity. Right. So you can hear there are different little letters, different little sounds. And that's because the Latin um, sort of, quote, unquote, more correct or more Latin like spellings actually came later into the language, into the English language. And of course, to make things even more confusing, Peter, there are certain words that are spelled one way in England and one a different way in America. I mean, yeah. like even as simple a word as disc, you know, <laughs> is likely to have, I mean, you're more likely to run into, I think, the C ending in England and the K ending in America, or maybe that I've got it reversed, I can't even remember anymore. But the, that means that the two major users of the language don't even agree on how to spell things. And we can blame West Hartford native Noah Webster for a lot of that distinction because he really wanted a declaration of cultural independence. And so English was unstable. There were, uh, you know, a lot of variant spellings around. But uh, Webster had a kind of dual mission. He wanted English to be, on the one hand, more American, and on the other hand, more phonetic. He hated silent letters. He hated double letters. So that's why we don't spell color and honor and humor with a U. He took that out. And things like um, public and music, he took the K off the end of those words, uh, which had been spelled with a CK. And other things like, um, like uh, the Z, uh, in words like analyze yes. or civilization. Um, so those things that we identify, he thought he was simplifying English. Of course, what has happened is he's made it more complex because all of us are now responsible for understanding two <laughs> major varieties of spelling. Absolutely. So I want to go back to one thing you were saying before, because I think it's, it is sort of mind boggling. So here you've got, uh, you know, uh, people speaking old English up to about 1066. The Normans come across uh, and pretty quickly for about 200 years, everybody who's in charge of anything 
<laughs> in England speaks French. You know, I mean, basically the ruling class becomes French. They start using French. They start using words. And, and, and I'm assuming English becomes kind of a Creole at, at a certain point. I mean, you know, words that would be really important to them. The vultures are eating the venison. You know, the sovereign said you have to go in the dungeon. And all these Anglo-Saxons are going, the who said the what? <laughs> what are you talking about? I mean, this is it's a pretty ma- massive hammer blow to the existing language. Yeah, and that's because when you think about it, the written record was, was first of all, very rare. Very few people were literate at all. But at that time, of course, the only things you would write down were really laws or, or bureaucratic lists. And so, of course, those were all done by the conquerors by the, in, in French. So there wasn't a lot of written Old English um, evidence. And that's why the literature of Old English, when you think about it, we have Beowulf from about 800. And then you skip to Chaucer in about, you know, in, in the around 1400. And so w- what happened to those 500 years? Well, well um, the, the simple fact is the written record was um, kept by the rulers and the educated and the elite, and they were all French speakers. And that, by the way, includes the kings of France. Henry V was the first to keep a record in the written language of English, and that was in 1415 or so. So that's already, uh, you know, 400 years of rule that was entirely French. So there's a reason why French has a peculiar status in English for English speakers, that the the reason English, uh, the French words sound fancy to us isn't just because of they have a, you know, a a neat accent or something. It's because we have it embedded in the language that there is a a kind of a, um, a hierarchical class system. I mean, that's why the animals in the barnyard, as you alluded to, um, are old English words, but the food served inside the, the castle are French words. So you have cow, which is English, but beef, which is French. And you have uh, pig, which is English, but pork, which is French. And you have sheep, which is English, but mutton, which is French. Uh, and so we literally speak a, a kind of, um, a, you know, a, a, a living record of the human history of one people ruling another. So you mentioned Noah Webster, and I'm happy to blame Noah Webster for anything you want to blame him for. But another big reformer is Ben Ben Franklin, right? He wants to do something with our spelling. Explain what what his whole gig was. Well, he actually had, in a way, it was a better plan, but of course it didn't happen. Um, And better with an asterisk. Um, His idea was to basically make up a new alphabet. The real problem with English is we had this alphabet that um, that um, that didn't correspond to the sounds, especially of the vowel sounds in English. And and what happened was this very bizarre confluence. The printing press uh, was brought to England in the 1400s. And right at that very moment, something called the Great Vowel Shift was taking place. And this was just a social phenomenon. The sounds of the words were changing. And so for Chaucer, words like that we would recognize as, for example, the words time and wife would have been pronounced team and weef. And so those vowels were shifting. But of course, the the letters that we represent them with were not shifting. Mm-hmm. We had already started printing words. And so the spellings didn't change, but the sounds changed. So you had a moving target. That was the big problem. And then what Ben what Ben Franklin decided to do, which is something that has been done in other languages, notably in Korean, in the language called Hangul, um, when he just said, well, let's just make up an alphabet that corresponds to the sound of the language and we'll respell everything with a new alphabet, a phonetic alphabet. And in a way, that's a great idea. And here's my reason that I'm glad it didn't work, which is that the spellings of these words, whether they're the pH sound for an F, the pH letters for an F sound in Greek or the CH for a sh sound in French, 
you know, or uh, just a simple C for a ch sound in Italian. Those are kind of the um, ancestry of each word, the biography of each word. For example, if you know my last name is Sokolowski and know nothing else about me, you know one fact, and that is where my grandfather was born. And I think that information is relevant. I think it's important to the culture to keep the, um, the visible history. Um, and again, embedded in the letters that we use, we can see, oh, that word comes from Old English, that word comes from Latin, that word comes from Greek, et cetera. Right. And, mean, and we can also entertain ourselves <laughs> yes. by you know, telling people that the word G-H-O-T-I is pronounced fish. There you, you go. Because <laughs> it's the G-H from enough and the O from women and the T-I from national. Um, so that's the kind of thing that Ben was probably trying to steer us away from. Sure. And some of these changes were consonants, too. So, for example, we spell the words knife and knight as a knight in shining armor with a K. But in fact, it was knif and knicht. Um, and the, just simply the sounds of those words changed over time. There's a natural evolution to every language. And in English, among other things, we dropped certain sounds and added others, changed others. And so we have these relics almost like a palimpsest. You're looking into history when you see a word like knife. And I think that history is worth keeping, but at the cost of very difficult and confusing spelling. Nice use of palimpsest there, Mr. Merriam-Webster. All right. So um, let's bring it up to today. So we sent uh, two of our interns, uh, Taylor Doyle and Jacob Gannon, out into Blueback Square to ask people whether or not spelling still matters. Do you think it's important to know how to spell? Nowadays, not really. I can't even tell what my kids text on here anymore. They're all abbreviations, so no, not really. Well, we do have spell check these days, but uh, within reason, absolutely. Well, as a person with dyslexia, I think to some degree, uh, but mostly probably not really too much. Yeah, yeah, I'd think so, because it's, it's more about communication and, like, you know, how you can communicate, because, you know, if somebody can't talk, they can spell. They can write down what they need to say instead of speaking it. I do, yeah. Why is that important? Uh, for me, it shows uh, attention to detail, and um, I don't know, English is kind of like a couple languages wearing a trench coat, so it's nice to have a little bit of each in it. <laughs> I like that. I like that image. Um, okay. So, yeah, I mean, I thought the last speaker there made an interesting point, right? Uh, and, and, and I think this is probably a prejudice carried around by people like you and me who care about spelling, which is that, yes, that's attention to detail um, an inability to spell uh, and a lack of interest in knowing correct spelling strikes many of us as sloppy. But can we really make a powerful case, Peter, for the idea that it really is like standardized spelling is important? Well, yes, of course we can. And uh, um, but at the same time, there's a big asterisk there, too. I worry, especially, for example, one of those speakers uh, mentioned dyslexia. You know, I worry uh, that we should not use spelling as a kind of um, uh, a measure of intelligence because it's not for an adult who can function beautifully. And if they, they are not spelling words, but speaking them, they might be. Uh, fluent and even eloquent speakers. And so that's not really the issue. However, uh, spelling is sort of the skin of our thoughts. It's what we see. Um, and especially now with social media, a lot of how we present ourselves is actually written down. It's it, And we judge others harshly <laughs> by um, their spellings. And that may be superficial, but it, what does it re- reveal? It reveals Um, In some measure, uh, as you said, attention to detail, maybe uh, a level of education or a level of class. But my point is we are always judged by the way we present ourselves verbally. 
um, our listeners are judging me right now by the sound of my voice, by my accent, by my intonation. Um, and so we judge, every, and that's just the deal. That's the way communication works. We have to be, we're stuck with our voices. We're stuck with um, these, uh, these means of communication. And so the fact is there is such a thing as standard English. It's not a superior form of the language, but it is a privileged form of the language. And the nature of that privilege is academic and professional. And so even if it's not the, the variety of English you speak in your home or you grew up with, um, it, there, there are obvious merits to uh, acquiring the language of prestige, which is, of, of course, the language of uh, standardized tests to some extent, the, the, the law, the legal system. Um, it's a, a simple fact. I, it may be unfortunate in lots of ways, but that's the way communication works. Right. And we, as you're suggesting, we need a certain amount of humility about this and a certain amount of understanding about it. You know, we have different levels of privilege. I, I mean, I took from eighth grade to my, through my freshman year of college, I took Latin. Uh, mm. It's not something that, you know, which can, in fact, kind of tune you to spellings because you have to watch them very carefully to see how the word's being used and stuff like that. But, I mean, that's not available to all kinds of people. And I think also, Peter, we should have some humility because a person who in earnest really tries to master this, and we're getting back to our original point here, will still fail some of the time. I mean, if you try to, for example, a frequently misspelled word is minuscule. Uh, And the reason it's misspelled is because a well-meaning person thinks, well, it means small, so I'll start M-I-N-I, and you're already on the wrong track. But it's hard to blame the speller for that, right? Either you have, you understand the quirk of this spelling or you don't. That's right. And another good example like that is sacrilegious, right? Oh. Um, because the, the the religious part of that word has nothing to do with the word religion, even though the idea of the word is clearly connected to religion. Um, and English is cruel. Um, we borrow certain words and make important distinctions that are completely arbitrary. Think of capital with an O versus capital with an A or complement with an I versus complement with an E or principle A-L or L-E. Those words etymologically are completely identical, but we have arbitrarily in English decided to separate them. So English has traps everywhere. And I personally don't judge spelling very harshly. Um, And and for adults to function, as some of your um, interview subjects uh, mentioned, for adults to function well and professionally, they don't necessarily need to know the the Latin etymologies of these words. However, of course, there are always rewards um, to them. And for children, for example, at the National Spelling Bee, think of 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds studying for the bee. Um, For them, I think it opens up new worlds just to know that there's a word for, I don't know, lepidoptery, that there's a special word that means the study of butterflies that tells them a few things. First of all, there is a branch of science devoted to this. Second of all, that its name or label has classical roots. It goes back to the Latin and Greek words. And so that's uh, that opens up a world um, for young people. Uh, so I do think the study of spelling it, it becomes kind of the study of intellectual history that can only um, help you and open up your world, especially as a young person. All right. Well, I'd like to stay and talk some more, but I have a meeting of the Philatelist Club. So uh, Peter Sokolowski, <laughs> editor-in-charge at Merriam-Webster, thanks so much for joining great, us. Great to be with you. All right. We'll be back with another spelling expert talking about how spelling works in the brain.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. That was a uh, mashup done by the inimitable Jonathan McPants, uh, thanks to him. I also want to say hello to Colin Cavallari. Am I saying that right? Yeah, Colin Cavallari. He's visiting from Communist Martyrs High School. Got a lot of kids from Commie Martyrs coming through here a lot uh, lately. Anyway, good to have him here. Also, because his name is Cavallari, our next guest is actually very fond of the word Cavalier, I happen to know. Uh, And I should also say that the part of Bill Curry today was played by Tori Spelling. Now joining us is Richard Gentry, uh, an education consultant and former university professor, reading center director, elementary school teacher. He has most recently published the Spelling Book series, Spelling Connections, a word study process uh, for grades one through six. Uh, welcome to our show, Richard. Colin, I'm just delighted and honored to be here. Thank you. And what a wonderful first segment you had. <laughs> well, Pia, Peter is a longtime friend of the show, as I hope you will now become. Uh, but so maybe just one thing, just even noticing that title, that book title there, and having listened to you talk about this on other occasions, I mean, it does seem as though spelling, the teaching of spelling uh, in American elementary schools, maybe at times a little bit haphazard. Um, maybe the plan for spelling isn't as well worked out as some of the other plans. Is that fair? Oh, it's beyond fair. Uh, you know, I think everyone knows that America has really uh, shameful reading scores. 
And a big part of that is because for about three decades, we stopped using spelling books. We stopped teaching spelling. And it's uh, a, a big movement called the science of movement now that is calling for change and all of that. Uh, we have to teach foundational skills like handwriting, the alphabet, and spelling and phonics. <laughs> but to that point and to the points that Peter and I were making before, you know, ultimately, I mean, we talked about words like phlegm and minuscule, but we could be like one word that I sort of can't really spell is vacuum. Like, I kind of know there might be some C's and I, there's a couple of U's and stuff, but there isn't, I don't think there's a set of rules I could learn to, uh, so that I would, I would be more certain about how to spell a word like vacuum. I just either know it or I don't. And so that kind of gets into the brain science, right? I need a place to store that information. It, it does. Uh, there are a few words like vacuum and yacht that uh, become what we call brain words. Uh, you, you have a metaphorical dictionary in your brain, and you can see the, um, the word, or if it's a multisyllabic word, um, the way it works is that uh, initially you see syllable uh, combinations of phonics and after using that over and over, that becomes a brain word. So let's talk about the brain a little bit. I mean, there, there is, is there actually a discernible sort of brain geography for spelling? Is there an orthographic storage center that you can pick up on a scan? Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's talk about that. Uh, it really is at the core of why spelling is important. It's important because it's essential for the brain's reading architecture. And, of course, reading helps build intelligence. Um, here's how it works, Colin, according to neuroscience. As a reader, you see the words on the page, and each word ignites a visual image of a known spelling in your long-term memory, and then connects automatically to your spoken language, where you already have each word's meaning and pronunciation. Since it's automatic, you're not aware when you're reading that you're using spelling to comprehend. Right. So let's back up here a little bit uh, because um, so speaking, speaking a language, we're sort we're almost a kind of plug and go device when it comes to that. Right. We are born with the capacity to learn a spoken language. Correct. That's correct. And it's such a, 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 a wonderful point to make. Everyone is born with spoken language circuitry, but no one is born with reading circuitry. Reading has to be taught. And, and so then it becomes very important how it is taught. Um, and so maybe talk a little bit about, you know, some of this is really going on in uh, critical stages are, are being transitioned through in first, second, third grades. So, so how, how can you more usefully teach spelling so that a kid actually has some of the tools he or she needs? Well, it actually, the teaching aspect of it actually happens in two parts. The first part is what you just mentioned, what happens when children are beginning to learn to read. And what happens is um, we've done a lot of research over the last uh, 20, 30 years to, to track what their invented spellings look like and how they change over time. They change, in fact, in five phases from the uh, uh, 
the first thing that should happen in preschool is that kids should learn to write their name. And they learn a lot about how the English system works, that it goes from left to right. They uh, learn what a word is and that it has meaning and that it can be represented in print. But with English, because of its uh, difficult spelling system, it takes a lot of time. You know, with Italian, one can learn to read in about six months. In In English, it takes about two years. And what happens in those two years in kindergarten and first grade is that kids go through various phases as they begin to uh, understand how this system works of matching the letters on the page to the words in their spoken language. And what should happen if we teach spelling appropriately in kindergarten and first grade with those foundational skills by the end of first grade, they should essentially have the same circuitry for reading that an adult does. Of and course, it's going it's, it, to, as children go up through the grades, um, they get more and more, uh, they sh- should have more and more, uh, uh, build more and more brain words through spelling instruction. And uh, that's why I think we need the, one of the major changes that's needed in American education is to bring back a curriculum, which would be something like spelling books, and to teach spelling explicitly and systematically about uh, 25 minutes a week, uh, a week of word study and spelling. It, it's, it's so important for but- building... I think, Richard, there's also a distinction that you make between decoding and encoding. And so I'm going to use one of your favorite examples. So you can teach a little kid to ultimately, maybe by the end of first grade, beginning of second grade, something, look at the word E-A-G-L-E and say, oh, that's eagle. Uh, so that's that's decoding. You you look at it and you're able to figure out what that word is, even though it isn't really phonetically spelled. Um, but to encode, to be able to just off the top of your head spell the word eagle, are those two different skills? I mean, they're obviously very very linked. But but are we actually using our brains differently when we do those two things? You're uh, you're using both of those processes at the same time. And eagle's a good word to uh, illustrate what should happen in kindergarten and first grade. Uh, in the beginning of kindergarten, a, a kid may not recognize that the letters match sounds. And so if she, she's writing eagle, she may just have uh, random letters. But then she moves to another phase by the end of kindergarten where she's going to match some of the letters to the sounds. She might come up with an E um, or uh, E. Uh, and then they move into third grade and they, I'm sorry, move into first grade. And in the first half of first grade, they can represent all the sounds. E for E, G for G, L for E, O. But what happens next in first grade is a real critical time for phonics instruction and learning those short vowel sounds and E marker patterns and ING patterns. And by the end of second half of first grade, they should be not spelling words by uh, matching a letter to each sound, but in English, they have to match to chunks of syllable patterns. So eagle might be spelled the first syllable E with an E and gull with G-U-L. And that's how they get on the road to um, activating that reading process 
And by the time they're moving into first, uh, second grade, they're spelling Eagle, E-A-G-L-E, if they have good spelling instruction. So let's talk about, I mean, first of all, would it be fair to say that as a society, our spelling is getting worse? Does that strike you heuristically as a fair statement? I, I think it is a fair statement, uh, but I think the major reason it's a fair statement is because we haven't been teaching spelling for about three days, uh, <laughs> or three decades, rather. Um, there's this um, now recognized as flawed uh, reading theory called whole language that um, uh, acted as if, if kids were just put in a classroom full of wonderful uh, books that they would and, and were read to that somehow they would learn to spell through osmosis. And that's not, that was the mistake. That's not how it happens. Now, there were a lot of good things came out of whole language. I, I was in that movement myself and studied uh, with the uh, leaders of the whole language movement. But uh, what we now understand from cognitive science and neuroscience is that they didn't do a good job in whole languages teaching with teaching foundational skills. Now, unfortunately, what's happened is there are a few people, uh, a few publishers and a few uh, leaders in that movement that have become very, very wealthy. And um, so it's very difficult. They don't want to change anything. The publishers who you know, have made millions of dollars out of this whole language movement don't want to change anything. So, uh, and teachers, uh, you know, uh, now after two or three decades, many of the teachers have not been trained at teacher training institutions and in how to teach these important foundational skills, handwriting, phonics, and spelling. So, Richard, another thing that's happening is, let's take a word that I don't spell very well, like vacuum. Uh, there are an awful lot of online formats that I work in these days where, at minimum, my misspelling of the word vacuum will have a red underline under it to tell me that I spelled it wrong. I might even be able to click on it and get some choices for what word it is I'm trying to write there. Uh, and it seems as though a fairly primitive version of AI is kind of taking over uh, some of our, our spelling. I'm guessing you don't think that's necessarily good for us. Well, you know, I think uh, uh, technology is a wonderful tool and, you know, it, it, it makes it so uh, helpful for all of us to uh, be more accurate in writing and spelling. But uh, often the uh, spell check can, can kind of be stupid. Um, you know, it can it can. can give you the incorrect spelling and uh, – it certainly, we now know from neuroscience that uh, it's certainly important to, uh, for understanding of reading to recognize that uh, this new brain scan, scanning technology in the last few decades has helped us understand the neurological aspect. For example, a thought leader in the science of reading movement Mark Seidenberg puts it this way, in neuroimaging studies, poor readers show atypically low activity in a part of the brain that processes the spelling of words. So, Colin, in general, here's what we know. Good readers can spell. Poor readers don't spell words very well. And most learning disabled readers, including people who are dyslexic, really struggle with spelling. 
Right. We're going to have to stop there, although I could talk to you an awful lot longer. But Richard Gendry is an education consultant, a former university professor, reading center director, uh, elementary school teacher, and author of the spelling book series, Spelling Connections, a word study approach for grades one through six. We'll be back with our final segment today. We're back, and it's time to say some thank yous and hand out some credit and compliments and stuff like that. So uh, we're going to start with, well, actually, we sort of had two technical producers for this, right? Kat Pastor and Lily Tyson are both technical producers on this. Lily Tyson, senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show. This episode was produced by Jennifer LaRue uh, with help from our interns Taylor Doyle and Jacob Gannon. Who else do I have to thank? Uh, Mariah Carey, Bono, both very helpful in getting this show on the air, and Martha Stewart dropped off some of the, like, it's like the chocolate peppermint stuff. It's bark. Is that what she calls it? I don't know. Anyway, a lot of people helped. It was a team effort. That's the point. But now we're really excited because, in fact, somebody we used to have on, I think, a little bit more regularly. And I don't know. I don't know what happened, but she's back. Anyway, that's the important thing. Deb Emlin is back, a crossword columnist and senior staff editor for the crossword column Wordplay for the New York Times. She's also a feature writer, and she writes the weekly diary of a spelling bee fanatic column. She has many other accomplishments. Uh, she's, uh, I think, a test pilot, for example. I don't think it really enters into work. bus driver, but I, you know, I'm happy to be a test pilot. It's something in transportation. I know that anyway. So maybe begin by explaining to people, Deb, what the New York Times spelling bee is. This is a feature. It's not an actual spelling bee, but, but what is it? Well, it's a game. We, I work for the New York Times games team on the editorial side. And, you know, everybody knows about the flagship crossword, the, you know, the big icon, the New York Times crossword. But we offer a lot of other games and there's still some in development. One of them, which was a really big hit and still is, is Spelling Bee. And it's actually adapted from a British game that Will Shorts saw and he modified it to make it ours. It involves finding words from a series of seven letters that are presented in a honeycomb shape. And you have to make words of at least four letters that include the central letter in the beehive. Got it. So in some ways, it's the thing that it's testing. I mean, obviously, you have to be able to spell in order to do this. But oh, it, yeah. feel, it feels like it's testing a different skill, though, ultimately, right? To do well at this, it's not necessarily how well you spell, right? It's how well you use everything that you know about the English language to come up with these words. Uh, yeah, more or less. I mean, there are spelling rules that have to be adhered to. And obviously, you know, you have to be able to spell the word or it will tell you that you're wrong and uh, make you feel bad about yourself. But I, I think that 
the bigger issue is really the words that are included or not included. That seems to be the issue. You know, if you're spelling a word like, I'm not going to reveal it because that would be a spoiler, like uh, today's pangram, you have to know how to spell it. It's it, There's a very easy spelling error that people could make, but the letter that would make it a mistake is not included. So you kind of back into the right answer. So... There's a first of all, we should say during the pandemic, there was a way in which this kind of thing became super attractive. I assume partly yeah. because people were cast off on their own a, a bit, mm-hmm. and so something that you didn't need to have other people around. But do you think there were other reasons why people started noodling around with stuff like this? Yeah, I I think that there were a couple of reasons. One is we acquired Wordle, mm-hmm. which you know automatically drew people because it had become such a phenomenon. And when the New York Times bought it and is, you know, housing it with a lot of love and grace, and we're taking very, very good care of it, people naturally migrated to the New York Times and they continue to do so. The other reason I think people flocked to games like Wordle and Spelling Bee and the Crossword Puzzle was the nature of how people react when there is a big stressor like a pandemic in their lives. One of the reasons people tend to do puzzles, especially crosswords and puzzles like Sudoku, is because there's one answer to each question. And, you know, Will Shorts once said that puzzle solving is uh, making order out of chaos. And, you know, everybody was really in dire straits at the pandemic. Nobody knew what was going on. There was no way to even get a sense of control over our lives. But they could control this. Yeah, They could come up, be asked a question and come up with an answer successfully. And I think that really boosted people's not only spirits, but their sense of self-esteem and the fact that, you know, even if things were really tragic, at least this in their life was something that they could handle and control. I think that's a terrific theory. I mean, I think it's a really good analysis, too, because so much uncertainty. We, we do live with uncertainty all of our lives, but the uncertainty was kind of this smacking. This was a biggie, as yes, we say. Right. <laughs> it smacking us in the, it's still smacking us in the face. There's still right. basic things that we don't understand, and people have kind of different theories about what's going on. And so, yes, to your point, having one correct answer is that's a, a very appealing thing. I wonder if there wasn't also perhaps or hasn't been some kind of reaction formation against the collapse of spelling essentially everywhere else. You know, there's sort of a way in which you look at social media and people just they just write in kind of phonetically or not even phonetically. Yeah. Phonetically would be something they could aspire to, maybe. I live with two young adults, so I know exactly what you're talking about. So it, maybe there's a way in which people who are perhaps even the parents of such other people or the grandparents of such other people think, well, no, there are actually correct ways to spell things. And I'm going to go play a game where there's only one way to spell this stuff. And you guys can go back and look at your phones. You know, I, I think that you're onto something, although I will take it a step further. I work with and speak to a lot of young people in the course of my work. And I have to say that I have a lot of hope for this generation because they do tend to take shortcuts in their spelling, but they also have a lot of respect for some of that stuff. And they're, I mean, I think that they, I think both things can be true. I think you could be the kind of person who plays with language because it's a living, evolving thing. 
including spelling, and also have respect for what's come before. I think there is also, though, perhaps among some of the older denizens of this planet, some pride in retaining the spelling. And I, I don't know how fictionalized your diary columns are. But there was that thing you wrote about <laughs> the old late, older women at the lake. I almost called them old ladies. Oh. I didn't mean to call them old ladies. But, and, and I think you were wearing a New York Times puzzle hat or something like that. And they started okay. talking to you. And then they were just kind of going nuts. Well, you should tell the story. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I will say, and, and I don't think I've ever said this publicly before, but hopefully it's so over the top that people, people have figured it out for themselves. But it is a fictional column. Uh, You know, there are people in there who exist in my life, like my husband and my mother and father, but they're fictionalized versions of themselves. And the story I think you're getting at was when I wanted to make the point that people were really, really starting to get crazy about spelling bee, and it became a very large part of their lives. So I had written that I was taking a walk around a lake that actually exists in my town. And uh, an elderly husband and wife walked up to me because they noticed my hat and they started talking about spelling bee and how much they liked it and how much when they get to genius, it, it really is a nice experience for them. And it became very apparent as the conversation went on that they were talking about how it stimulated them sexually and that, you know, they got to Queen Bee once and spent three days in bed. Right. So I, I, I was assuming that most of that was fictionalized. But I, I think uh, underneath any kind of humorous vignette, there's an idea that's a little bit more concrete and serious. And, and I think yeah. I, I don't think it's so much the sexy time part of it. But um, <laughs> but that idea that people were getting kind of excited and prideful and, you know, there, there was a sense that you could maybe kind of curate a little tiny corner of your self-esteem by doing this thing well. Oh, sure. Absolutely. And people get very frustrated when they don't reach it. There are people who, you know, will go as far as they can and then give up. But there are people who play the game all day long from the time it comes out. And I will mention that at least on the East Coast, it it publishes at 3 a.m. So I know for a fact that there are people who get up at 3 a.m. to start playing the game. They may not stay up, but they do want to be have the first crack at it. And they play for the next 20, 24 hours. And we have a spelling bee forum on gameplay, which is our section, where people love to talk about it. And they love to talk about the way people spell things. And they love to talk about the words that are left out or not left out. Um, One of the things I love about it is that people are very helpful and they tend to give each other tips um, and help each other get to genius. So there's, there's nothing better when you, you read about somebody who just started playing the game and gets to genius for the first time by themselves. And everybody's around to sort of applaud them, which I love about our community. Right. And so you are also, you therefore, talking about a society of people who care about this stuff and, and think yes. it's worth knowing. And I, won't, worth I won't use the word pedantic. No, no, but, I don't think so. I don't think I, I think in a way it's like, you know, I don't know, our parents, our grandparents, yeah. they took pride in this without being pedantic. They just thought, well, they're just the right way to spell that word. Right. Well, I think that also, you know, it's probably because they got punished if they didn't. True. And that sort of faded away over time. Um 
I, you know, I remember talking to my parents about and my grandparents about things like this. And, you know, the rules were a lot stricter then. There was no internet. There was no sense that the language was going to evolve the way it did. There were things that were done a certain way and they were always going to be done that way. And that just doesn't hold true as much anymore. Do you find as a writer that... Mm -hmm. Like one of the things that I've noticed these days is that uh, frequently when I'm writing, there's this sort of tyranny of the red underline. You know, like you think that you've <laughs> you're you're talking about the copy editors, aren't you? <laughs> well, I'm ta- no, yeah, I'm talking about the actual the sort of AI copy editors that sit oh. there in, in your MS Word and stuff like that. Copy, yes. I th- I love copy editors, and Deb, you know, you probably Me know. I, I worked in newspapers for 20 years, and one of the things that I love about copy editors is if you're working with the same ones all the time. They know that I don't know how to spell exaggerate, you know, but they, and they don't even tell me that I don't know how to spell it because they don't care that I know that I, they don't care whether in the rest of my life I can spell exaggerate. They just know I don't know how to spell it and they just fix they just it automatically. They just know the red line yeah. they and, just, they, and correct it. Yeah, they just fix it with, same, with every writer they deal with. They know yes. what we're idiots about. Well, I, I used to, and I, I'm glad you used that word because my what I say to people all the time is that I love my copy editors because they make me look smart. Right. And we don't have uh, consistent copy editors at the New York Times. We tend to have people rotating uh, on and off the desks. But I used to, and it was great to have a working relationship with them. But I find that the rotating copy editors are overseen by people who do know my writing very well. And they know not to redline the jokes. And they know that occasionally there may be typos. But they're very, like, like your experience, they're very understanding. Oh, yeah. No, I think a great copy editor is like working with a net. And, and you get so oh, yeah. used to it that if there's some, if you get copy edited by somebody else, who doesn't know that you don't know how to spell raccoon? You know, what? there's like C's and O's and who knows how many of them there are. But uh, you know, but so they, they, don't, they don't save you exactly. Three M's and a silent Q. That's right. how you spell raccoons. <laughs> but no, I was, I was thinking more about the the you know like today I was trying to write something that referred mm-hmm. to a gummy as in the kind of marijuana gummies that some of us are, the cannabis mm-hmm. gummies that some of us some, Not us. some depraved but, people but other people yeah other other people right. uh, use and so i thought i thought maybe this i thought i knew gummies ies was the plural but i sort of mm-hmm. thought maybe g u m m i e was the singular but right away that red line came out and i thought and i looked at it and i thought is there can we talk can we negotiate about this or right. but no the red line is just there right I I think yes. And, you know, one somebody who worked at The New York Times much longer than I did once said to me, spell check is a wonderful thing, but the art comes in knowing when to pay attention to it. Right. You know, there are things that get misspelled all the time because we have, you know, partial words and stuff that we discuss in, in the crossword column. So my my habit when I'm writing and I see a bunch of things piling up in the spell check is delete, 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 until I know that they have a legitimate beef with what I'm writing. (laughs) The thing that I find funny is how they can sometimes learn the words that you use. And I was once writing a business email to somebody uh, named Michael. 
And I had written uh, the opening, which was Dear Michael, and wrote what I needed to, signed off on it, uh, hit send. And just as it, I happened to be doing this on my phone, and just as I hit send, I saw it changed to the word mucus. (laughs) So what the guy received was an email that started with Dear Mucus. (laughs) That's actually autocorrect. It's not really a spell check. No, but it's perverse, too. You know, I mean, it really kind of went out of its way to make an ugly choice for you. But I I know I totally agree that AI is eventually we're going to eventually five years from now, you'll start a letter. It'll say, dear Michael. And then the right. AI will just write the whole rest of the letter. It'll already know what it was you were going to say. So that's I know who bad. it is. I know you owe him money. You know. So let's let's uh, get to uh, Jennifer LaRue's million dollar question, which is: sure. I mean, this doesn't really affect you as a married person, but imagine that you weren't married and you were in a kind of swipe left, swipe right situation. Right. I don't even know which one's the good one or the bad one. But I don't. Even. Uh, but like, would spelling is it a deal breaker? Is it important to you? Is it is it important to you that you know? that a person in your life can spell? You know, I think for some people it is. I think for writers, it probably holds a lot more importance. And I will say that it does affect me because I, in fact, met my husband on a dating site. Mm. And the one thing that I liked was not that he could spell correctly, but that he reads the New York Times. So immediately he was a favorite. Um, But he did. And I think even if you're not a good speller, one of the things you can do is is have somebody look it over for you, because, you know, it's like going out on a blind date. You want to present your best self. Mm -hmm. And if you write a bio that has spelling errors in it or it shows that you don't care, you're much more likely to get swiped in whatever direction it is that means no. (laughs) <laughs> right. Although from our from the consumer's point of view, so to speak, yeah. uh, you know, we would rather know whether this person can spell oh, or not. You you want me to speak for everybody? Yeah, well, no. um, <laughs> uh, I would imagine, you know, there are some people who might not be good spellers and, you know, want someone who's about the same level as they are. I think everybody's different. Right. I, I personally, I like a good speller. So but anyway, it was a successful, I mean, your own experience doing this was successful, but it didn't really have anything to do with spelling, probably. Your husband, I mean. No, no. He's <laughs> he's, a, he's a great guy, all, despite his spelling. Beside, despite the spelling. All right. Well, listen, uh, first of all, Deb Anlin, so great uh, to be uh, having you back on the show. Uh, let's not make it uh, quite so long as an, uh, an interval. And uh, next time, Deb Anlin is crossword columnist and senior staff editor. The crossword column wordplay for the New York Times. A seven-letter word for a name I left out is McPants. Uh, Jonathan McPants, as usual, was very helpful in mixing music and stuff like that for today's show. Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. Same old